Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited and honored to have today on the pod simply one of the most famous, prominent, and important legal philosophers in the entire world. That's not an understatement. Brian Leiter is the Carl N. Llewellyn Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Chicago. He is also the director of the Center for Law, Law, Philosophy, and Human Values. He received his undergraduate from Princeton, his PhD and JD from um, Michigan. He has written too many books and too many articles to even begin talking about. I am just so excited to talk to you. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you very much, and thanks for that very nice introduction. Looking forward to it. I wanted to mention that a few weeks ago, Steve Laddick was on here, and he is the Charles Allen Wright Professor of Federal Courts at Texas. I am a federal courts nerd. I said, I've been teaching it for 30 years. I said to him, man, the Charles Allen Wright, Wright chair, that's a good chair to have. Maybe it's the second best chair to have, but the Carl Llewellyn chair, I am a core legal realist, might be the best chair to have. So congratulations on that. Um, you, you are a Charles leading Allen expert. Wright, by the way, you know, I, I taught at Texas for many years before coming to Chicago, and Charles Allen Wright was a legal realist. Yes, yes. Yes, I, um, I, I he wasn't that. as vocal about it as Carl Llewellyn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are one of the leading experts on this phrase, legal realism. Um, I am identified with that movement, but sometimes, sometimes inaccurately. Why don't you define legal realism for us, how you see it? Um, and let's, for the moment, keep it to the United States. We might extend it later. Good. Yeah, so American legal realism, which has been one of the important legal realist movements in 20th century jurisprudence, um, was concerned fundamentally with the question, um, why do courts decide as they do? Right? What are judges doing? And they wanted to attack a certain picture of uh, how courts make their decisions. Um, this was a picture according to which um, the decisions are determined entirely by the authoritative legal sources, and the correct modes of legal reasoning, and that's it. And non-legal considerations, non-legal norms, moral norms, political norms, economic norms, supposedly played no role in the decisions that the, the courts reached. And at the time that most of the realists were writing in the 20s and 30s, they showed again and again through careful you know, case studies of different areas of law that this wasn't true. Right? that the doctrines that the courts would uh, uh, invoke didn't actually explain the decisions. Um, and that then raised the question, well, what does explain the decision? Now, to put this a little more technically, right, the claim was that legal reasoning is indeterminate. That is what I like to call the class of legal reasons. That is the kinds of legal reasons a judge can give to properly justify their decision. And the realist said those reasons underdetermine the decision. That is, you can defend more than one decision with available legal reasons. Right. That might be because there are different precedents you could invoke. You can interpret a statute in different but conflicting ways. Um, and so the crucial question then becomes, since the legal reasons underdetermine the decision, why does the judge reach the particular decision that they, they actually reach? Um, the answer to that, now this, this is important about the American realists. Um, you know, the American realists were focused almost entirely on private law areas, commercial mm -hmm. law, choice of law, torts, um, not areas that were especially politically charged. Right? And a lot of the realists take Llewellyn, my namesake of my chair. Uh, you know, Llewellyn, who studied sales law and commercial law generally, 
he thought judges generally were extremely sensitive to the uncodified norms of business practice, right? That is the norms that arise in different trades that aren't codified, that aren't part of the law. And judges were very attuned to that. And as a result, they looked to see which of the parties had been playing by the rules, that is the informal rules, and which weren't. And then they would decide against the one who had you know, deviated from the norms. And, you know, your lawyer listeners will know that, of course, Llewellyn put that into Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code, right? Because the central element of good faith is observing fair standards of dealing in the trade, right? And that's what Llewellyn thought judges were already trying to do, and he just codified it, right? So he <laughs> took what the actual practice was and made it explicit, right? Um, and realists did that in, in many different, uh, different areas of, of law. Let me stop there because I'm talking too much. So oh, no, that make well, I, I want to emphasize something you said that's really important, which is that legal realism in this country was born not in constitutional law. Most people think Correct. it was. You know, most people think it was, but but it wasn't. And 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 the reason that's important, I think, is because it's. I'm often criticized for for focusing on those few con law cases the Supreme Court decides that are on the front page of the New York Times. But the reality is, I think legal realism is an accurate description in many senses in many non-constitutional law areas. Do you, do you agree with that today? I mean, I, I do agree with that. Um, you know, I think the, the American realists made progress. I mean, the, the, the American realists became very interested in law reform. Uh, as I mentioned at the, the very start, right, you know, Charles Allen Wright was right. a legal realist. What is Wright known for? A great treatise on federal practice and procedure. But the way he understood the treatise was in the classic legal realist way, which is, you know, there was a tendency for courts and commentators to state very abstract doctrines of law. Right. But the goal was get away from the abstract doctrines and bring them closer to the ground of the factual differences between cases that courts are actually sensitive to. And that's what he saw the, the treatise is doing. But I, but I do think it's true. I mean, another great example and a modern example is <clears throat> Douglas Laycock's book on the, the death of the irreparable injury rule. Right. Laycock used to be my colleague at Texas. He didn't realize he was a legal realist until I explained it he, to him. He still doesn't, I don't think. <laughs> he, well, <clears throat> he definitely was in, in the irreparable, you know, the irreparable injury rule is, is a doctrine that says officially, right, courts are not going to grant injunctive relief unless an irreparable injury will result, right? If monetary damages will suffice, they're not going to enjoin behavior. Um, and what, what Laycock showed um, <clears throat> is that irreparable injury doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. That the courts recite the rule, but it's got nothing to do with their actual decisions. And Laycock thought the judges made very sensible decisions, but the rule didn't explain anything about their <laughs> decisions. Brian, so his book was called The Death of the Irre Irreparable Injury Rule. It really should have been called an attempt to kill the irreparable injury rule. <laughs> it was not successful. Courts still recite it, but I take it Laycock is still correct. That is the broad rule, only if there's an irreparable injury, isn't going to help you figure out whether you're going to get your injunction. Well, speaking of Charles Allen Wright and Doug and federal courts, one of my favorite cases to teach in my federal courts class is actually a case involving a strip club from my hometown in Port Washington, New York, um, where the court held, surprisingly, with Rehnquist writing of all people, that the strip club did suffer irreparable injury by not being able to put 
take the tops off of their dancers. They were allowed to dance, but they had to dance with pasties. The difference between dancing with pasties and not was irreparable injury to Justice Rehnquist, which I've always found very, very funny because only money was at stake. I mean, money and bankruptcy possibly was at stake. Anyway, that's, I, I agree with Doug on the irreparable injury thing. Um, so I want to ask you um, a question now that's a little bit um, for our lawyers and law professor listeners, but I, but I hope non-lawyers will follow along a little bit. There was a movement in the 1960s, 1970s called Critical Legal Studies in, in the Legal Academy, uh, led by, let's just say, Duncan Kennedy at Harvard and, my, and one of my mentors, Mark Tushnet, who's, who's been very good to me in my career. Um, and my view, and I've mentioned this to Mark many times, CLS, as we called it, um, legal realism is a subset of CLS, I think, but CLS went much further and talked about how the indeterminacy of law was critically important to the myth of the rule of law in general, not just in appellate courts. And I've been fighting people now for 20 years who think of me as a crit or think the crit critique was over. And I'm not a crit. I don't, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not unpersuaded, but I haven't studied it. I don't know. What I'm talking about is legal realism in appellate courts. How, how big a problem is that for American jurisprudence in your circles? How big a problem is which the, the CLS? Well, the confusion between CLS's overriding critique, which I think is much oh, more I controversial see. than the legal realist critique of judicial decision making. Right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, it, it's funny, just it's a little anachronistic to call realism a subset of, of <laughs> CLS, um, given the, the chain of influence. Yeah. Now, I, have, I, you know, personally, I have a pretty low opinion of critical legal studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to teach it in jurisprudence, and I stopped many years ago because the arguments are so bad, and I didn't think there was any point in wasting time on it. Right. Um, you know, here are two of the important differences. Um, many of the critical legal study writers, including uh, at times Tushnet, defended the view that law was always indeterminate, um, <clears throat> that in every case the class of legal reasons could justify more than one decision. Um, and that's extremely implausible. No matter what happens in the next 45 minutes, nobody's going to have an antitrust action against me or you. <laughs> the law is pretty damn clear. Mark might have a defamation action. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, he's not even going to have a defamation action. <laughs> he knows what my opinion is anyway. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, so they made a very strong and implausible claim. And I think they convinced a lot of people, like my colleague Doug Laycock, that that was what legal realism stood for. And as you just said, um, the realist, put aside Jerome Frank, who was an outlier among the American realists, um, the legal realists, when they were sober and not getting rhetorically carried away, <laughs> were pretty clear that they were talking about, um, you know, what goes on in the appellate courts. Right. And, that they're, and all their examples come from the appellate courts, right? And of course, their discovery at the appellate court level was still a startling one, which is that even at the appellate courts where they're supposed to be just reviewing questions of law, in fact, the appellate courts are extremely sensitive to the underlying facts of the case, to the situation types, as the realists called them. Okay? But still, appellate courts are not very representative of, uh, of the legal system as a whole. Right? You know, the universe of legal questions is huge. The number of them that make it to the appellate court is... <laughs> minuscule. Agreed. Right? Agreed. Um, so law exists primarily outside the courts. I mean, most people's interaction with the law is, you know, they want to get married, they want to buy a house, they right. enter into a contract with the person doing work on their property, and they never go near courts. Right? Um, 
So, you know, indeterminacy in legal reasoning that arises uh, at the appellate court level is an extremely plausible thesis in the United States. Um, Indeed, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would really deny that there isn't at least some Um, indeterminacy uh, in the appellate courts. And it's not surprising because there's a kind of selection effect. If the law is uncertain, unclear, if the precedents could go either way, if the statute admits of differing interpretations, why not litigate, right? If you've got resources, why not take it to the appellate courts? So um, indeterminacy at the appellate court level is plausible. The idea that indeterminacy is pervasive is not plausible, it seems to me. The, The other thing that was, I think, a little crude about critical legal study was the emphasis on pure politics. Now, I think this partly had to do with the difference in, in focus, though many of the critical legal studies writers wrote about areas like contracts, right? Um, but they tended to, you know, locate politics at, you know, at a, the level of abstract political philosophies that were allegedly embedded in the law. And, you know, of course the law reflects general moral and political views, right? It tends to reflect general moral and political views as they've evolved over long periods of time, at least in the common law um, jurisdiction. Um, But I think, again, the American realists had it right, which is that what the real source of indeterminacy is that, you know, equally competent and conscientious lawyers and judges can take the same legal materials and read them differently, right? They can distinguish the precedent or treat the precedent as controlling. They can take the same statutory text and get two meanings out of it. You know, a great example of this recent is the Bostock decision about Title VII. Yes. For the Title VII classic. Protects. Classic. And, 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 and not the Alito decision. Here, I, you know, I, I agree with Linda Greenhouse. I heard you mention this yeah. on an early podcast. I mean, he's a, he's a hack. Yeah. He is not a very thoughtful, um, you know, reactionary justice. <laughs> The interesting opinion in Bostock are the majority opinion by Gorsuch and the dissent by Kavanaugh, because they both claim to be textualists and they reach the opposite result. Right. But let me ask you about Kavanaugh for one second, Brian, because yeah. I, I've, I've been debating. I've had three debates with actual judges in the last year over textualism. Okay. And one thing I keep pointing out to them is Kavanaugh's dissent, which he claims to be textualist, cites like a thousand things outside of the statute. He cites administrative courts and states all over the country. He cites clubs and private people. He, he, he cites so many things outside the statute, it's hard for me to take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's true, except, of course, um, if you're trying to identify the meaning of the text at the time it was enacted, other kinds of evidence is relevant, right? Um, yes, but a lot of textualists deny that today, sadly. Yeah. Well, some do. I mean, the, but I don't think that was the heart of the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh dispute. The, the, heart of, the heart of the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh dispute, which I thought was actually kind of interesting, though it vindicates the realist thought that textualism is not a method that imposes much constraint. That's me. The, <laughs> is that... Um, you know, Gorsuch says, uh, okay, I'm going to be a textualist and we need to consider the meaning of the words in isolation. So we consider what's the meaning of sex, right? You know, on the basis of, right? And then we, we consider the meaning of the words in isolation and then put them together. And that's how we get the conclusion that right. discriminate against people based on gender identity or sexual orientation. Okay? Um, 
Whereas Kavanaugh says, it's kind of an interesting point in philosophy of language and the nature of meaning. Kavanaugh says, no, the unit of analysis is not the individual words, it's the entire phrase. Right. And he says, if you take the entire phrase, and this is why he then starts pointing to these external sources, the phrase, the meaning of the phrase is not simply the meaning of each word and then considered in isolation and adding them together. Okay? Now, that's an interesting question, okay? But what it shows us is that contemporary textualism, which is dominant as an ideology in our federal courts, right, is still vulnerable to the same old realist critique, which is you can be Gorsuch or you can be Kavanaugh, both competent textualists, and reach the opposite conclusions right. on the basis of the same materials. So um, on this podcast, as my listeners know, I usually or almost always mention retired Judge Posner at least once. Um, I'll probably mention him twice today because I have two questions for you. I talked to Posner about his Hively decision, concurrence, excuse me, in the same case, you know, uh, in the same cases. And I, after the fact, I want to be clear, it was after the fact. And um, yeah. it became very clear to me and to him that what really drove his decision was that it was wrong. It was wrong to deny gays and lesbians these protections. Now, he didn't exactly say that, of course, in his concurrence, but he came close to saying that in his concurrence. It's just wrong. Isn't it possible the difference between Gorsuch and Kavanaugh is that? I think it is possible that, that it is that. I, I don't know enough about either of them to venture a, a competent hypothesis. I know Dick quite well, as you do, yeah. Dick Posner. Um, and, you know, with him, um, can, can I say something a little general about Dick? Yes. Uh, might be of interest to people, right? Um, you know, Dick was was not a religious person, to put it mildly. To put it mildly, yes. <laughs> he really disliked religion. Yeah. And when he saw legislation, you know, or behavior that could only be explained by some dogmatic religious conviction, he was very unsympathetic. Same thing happened when Indiana, yes. you know, tried to defend its statute on against same-sex marriage. You may, you probably heard that oral argument. I, yeah, and I, we, Steve Sanders and I discussed that on my last podcast, and it, it was really okay. something, yeah. Yeah, Posner, you know, could not restrain his contempt <laughs> for um Notre for their, Dame, by the way, got more contempt. Notre Dame in the that? Notre Dame in the form case for for the got That's more contempt the other than example even. That. I often mentioned <laughs> mentioned the students, right. He he clearly couldn't believe that one. He kept saying, What remedy do you want? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, so I do think there was, you know, an element of just he's profoundly unsympathetic. To the efforts of religious people to enforce what are sectarian religious dogmas on the population as a whole. Right? Now that can't explain Gorsuch or Kavanaugh. No. Both of them, you know, Gorsuch was uh, raised as a Catholic, is now an Episcopalian. You know, both of them are conservative religious people in that regard. Um, so it's it's probably a more complicated explanation with right. them. Again, I don't know enough about either of those individuals to to have a hypothesis. Though it does point out something, you know, important when you move from private law to public law as a legal realist, yes. which is when you get to public law, it does seem like, and you know, the political science literature has offered plenty of evidence for this, that the ideology, the political ideology, the judge really does loom much larger, and often just, you know, things about the the individual personality, right? So go back to Alito. I mean, Alito's opinion in the Bostock case is terrible, 
Right. right? It's just a rant. Right? <laughs> um, and he often does that. You know, his leaked row draft, Dobbs draft is a bit of a rant, as, a as Steve a was discussing with you. Um, but, uh, you know, here's a crucial thing about Alito. He graduated from Princeton around in the early 1970s. And as a young man, he joined an organization called the Conservative Alumni of Princeton. I know this because I went to Princeton. Yeah. Conservative Alumni of Princeton was formed in the early 70s as a reaction to admitting women in the late 60s. Right. right. So here's a guy who, as a young man, joins this utterly reactionary organization. Right. Yeah. This tells you something very important about the way he looks at the world. Right. Right. And, 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 and listeners of this podcast know that I keep mentioning this. I, I feel like I'm screaming into a void. On a similar but much brighter note, at least for me, there is one reason, and really only one reason, why we have Obergefell and same-sex marriage in this country nationally. And that's because Justice Kennedy grew up um, in the presence of a very dignified, gay, closeted man who was a very close friend of his father became dean of mcgeorge law school this gay closeted man suffered indignity after indignity after indignity being closeted kennedy saw that and that is why dignity plays the role it plays in obergefell which might be a shame or not um but again it's the same thing that's who kennedy was that's who alito is it's, um i yeah, want to ask I, you about, I didn't know that about kennedy's personal history that's yeah. very interesting and it is plausible right i mean yeah. clearly kennedy i mean kennedy was uh you know practicing catholic but he clearly wasn't a reactionary Right. And he had a higher degree of empathy for what, um, you know, gay people endure, um, even to this day. But certainly, you know, uh, in earlier, uh, earlier. I'm quite convinced it was because of that relationship. Um, yeah. About Posner. Um, I, I, I wish I could talk to you for like six hours. But um, about Posner. So he is known among, I think, uh, um, law professors in general, and not just con law professors or theorists, uh, as a pragmatist. That's what he's, that, you know. Judge Posner is a pragmatist. But I, and I'm sure that's probably true, but I actually think he's a legal realist as much or more than he's a pragmatist. Is that fair? There's, there's no question he's a legal realist. Okay. And the pragmatism label is almost completely meaningless. I agree with that. I, I have talked to him about this. Here's what I learned. Um, he associates legal realism with Jerome Frank, who was an outlier even among legal realists in the extremity of his views. And he associates with Felix Cohen, uh, not Felix Cohen, sorry, um, the guy who wrote the uh, Farewell to Law Review's article, Fred, what's his name? Yeah, he was great. I forget his name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't like that. Fred Rodell. He didn't yeah. like Fred Rodell either. Um, but there's no question that his jurisprudential position is that of legal realism. In this regard, he is not very different from William O. Douglas except that he and Douglas have slightly different, shall we say, policy perspectives. Not at the end. At the beginning, yes. Not at the end. <laughs> Not at the end. Towards the end, he, he moved closer to, to being like Douglas. Um, so uh, I, I completely agree with that. There's no question he is a legal realist. The pragmatism label is not illuminating. Um, right. And, you know, and I'm he... I'm glad to hear you say that, Brian. I really am. Yeah. Um, did, did you ever hear, you must have heard his story about his confirmation hearing to the yes. Seventh Circuit? Yes, yes, and many times. He's written about this, so it's no longer yes. a secret. I first, he, I first heard him tell the story in my jurisprudence class in Texas almost 25 years ago. Um, but, you know, he he gets asked by Senator Thurman, you know, if you're appointed, I can't do a Southern accent, if you're appointed 
court, right? You would view it as your duty to apply the laws written and not to make law, correct? Yes. And he said, since he's not an idiot, he says, well, actually, it's more complicated than that. And he explained that the appellate courts get a lot of cases where the law is indeterminate. He didn't use that phrase. And therefore, we have to fill things in, right? Um, so we do have to make some judgments about political and economic policy in order to get an authoritative resolution to these disputes. Um, now, the funny denouement of that story, as you know, is yeah. that when he got the transcript of his hearing, it was they gone. Actual answer. <laughs> <laughs> they whitewashed him. <laughs> they just had him say yes. <laughs> I, I asked him. Um, I asked him actually. I, I I I had that conversation on tape, and I've asked him about that. And I said, "Were you okay with that kind of misleading thing?" And he said, "I wanted the job." <laughs> um, Brian, yeah, one last thing about Posner. Um, so he and I had a battle. Oh, that's the wrong word. He and I had a, a debate in the uh, Cardozo Law Review where I took the position that the Supreme Court is different as a matter of kind, not degree, than any other court in America for a whole, I'm only talking America now, for a whole set of reasons. He disagreed with that. And one of his main arguments was 99% of my cases don't go, uh, more than that, don't go to the Supreme Court. So part of your argument, he said, was they're the final word, but I'm the final, my panel is the final word. A 99% of cases, to which I said yes, but that 1% is all the cases most people care about, and we went on and on. Do you think this, I, 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 it's, I've, built, I've staked my career on the idea that the Supreme Court is a unique political, legal, hybrid institution that isn't even a court, um, but leaving that part of it out of it. Do you agree the Supreme Court is different in kind than our appellate courts, or is he, are, you, are you taking Posner's side on it? Well, you know, I'd, I'm, my view is probably closer to Posner's view. Okay. I mean, the sources of legal, the selection effect that produces legal indeterminacy in cases that get to the appellate courts is heightened at the Supreme Court dramatically. That seems to me a difference in degree, not, not in kind. Um, but it is a dramatic, you know, increase in the selection effect, right? 8,000 cases, you know, get appealed to the Supreme Court and they take 80, right? right? And of course, they're going to, you know, unless they're, they want to change the law, right? This is Dobbs or, you know, New York versus the United States. Unless they want to change the law, they pick the ones where the circuits disagree, the law is unclear, and it has to be resolved by the super legislature, which is the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, now you might say that adds up to a, a difference in kind. I guess the one thing the Supreme Court can do that is fundamentally different than the appellate courts um, is, you know, the Supreme Court has aggregated itself to itself the right to say what the Constitution means. Okay? I mean, they, that was asserted early on. It took a while to take hold, yes. but it's taken hold at least since the late 1950s pretty robustly. Right? Yes. Um, and that's a significant power that they have aggregated to them to themselves. So let, let, me, let me push back. Courts don't quite have that because they can always be overturned by the Supreme Court. Right? So, so the two points that I think support my view, um, and then we'll move on. One is a very legal realist point. One is just facts. The Seventh Circuit decides cases for three states. And people yeah. in Georgia don't really have to worry about the Seventh Circuit. The difference between deciding for three states and 50 states, I think, is a substantial, significant difference in kind. That's one thing. 
Okay. More, and then my second point. Mind. Maybe I don't understand how you're thinking of the concept. That just seems a, a difference in degree. Three versus fifty. Well, it goes to my next. It goes to my next okay. point, which is a very legal realist point. I think. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Uh, my mother was a therapist. I grew up in a household with this. Um, the psychological difference between having the final word, no matter what, absent a constitutional amendment, which is the final word, um, having the final word for life, and having the not final word in important cases for life is a psychological difference that I think very few human beings, part of my critique of the court, is the institution has been broken from the beginning, or at least since 1803, since no human being should ever be given this job description. You have unreviewable power for life. Don't give anybody that job description. I don't think Judge Posner had unreviewable power for life. I do think that the Supreme Court does pretty much. And that difference, to me, changes how judges do their jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, of course, Posner, and this was his point about 99% of his cases never go yeah. up to the Supreme Court. He had a lot of unreviewable power. Fair, fair. fair. <laughs> he had a lot of unreviewable power. I agree that the Supreme Court has more, and especially in constitutional matters. So this may just be a semantic quibble about whether this is a different, a, dif a big difference of degree or a difference in fair. time. Fair. It's clearly different. It is clearly very different. Um, and, you know, I... I'm sympathetic to the thought. I mean, lifetime tenure has turned out to be a disaster. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, staggered term limits would clearly serve the purpose of insulating judges from political uh, pressure, but at the same time allow the court to be more representative of where the country is. Right? Yes. And we are heading at, the, at this moment, right, to a, a really probably the worst divide between the court and the country since, you know, the New Deal period. Maybe um, even including uh, uh, Barry Friedman, who I think is the expert on kind of the court being reflective of the will of the people, name of his book. He thinks the crisis is coming and this gulf is as big as it's ever been. Yeah. Okay. That's a plausible hypothesis. And I would defer to him on that. <laughs> um, clearly getting very substantial because of well, partly because of Mitch McConnell, right? The court's already been packed, right? Right. The only question now is whether you pack it with more justices. But it's already been packed in terms of, you know, ignoring all the ordinary procedures in order to make sure that you get super legislators on the court who will vote as the Republican Party expects, at least most of the time. Yeah. And they've done that. All right. I have a few um, uh random questions that I think we can tie back in maybe, but I am curious. I'm sure everybody is curious. Um, what was your reaction to the leaked opinion? If you've read it, what's your reaction to the substance of the? We know it's a draft. We know it's going to change. We know they're going to water it down. It does reflect Alito's inner thinking, I think, pretty precisely. But what, what, where were you when you found out about it and what were you thinking about it? I, I don't remember. I was probably spot on Twitter, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, I'm not surprised that they're doing this, um, you know, given the, the ideologies of, you know, we have these a whole bunch of Catholics on the court. Right? And, you know, the antipathy towards abortion, you know, runs very strong in conservative Catholic circles. Right? Um, you know, I'm quite sure, for example, they're going to, you know, knock out Grutter and affirmative action, you know, next sure. year. No surprise on that. Um, the surprise about Roe, and this is probably why Roberts is, you know, nervous. Right? Yes. 
is that the the political backlash is probably going to be very, very, very substantial. Um, you know, it may turn out to be it, it's going to be very bad for women with limited resources in a whole bunch of states in America if they strike it down. Um, but it may end up, uh, you know, being a windfall for the Democrats. I agree. Because now Republican legislatures, you know, have to deliver. And it, it, as you as you probably know, not all of them are going the the full way yet. Right. Some of them are, you know, trying to read the right. <laughs> the political tea leaves. Although not see. in my part of the country, Brian. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not in Georgia. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, some of them are going to go all the way, and then there's going to be some backlash, right? Yeah. I'm curious to see what's going to happen in Wisconsin. I mean, Wisconsin has on the book, you know, an almost complete ban. Right. It's immediately going to go into effect. You know, and Wisconsin is a state that, you know, has blue and red elements to it. Um, I have a feeling it's going to be good for the Democratic governor who's running for re-election. Um, it's going to be a problem for some of the some of the Republicans because they're going to have to they're going to have to save what their core voters want, which is yes, no exceptions, complete ban, maybe an exception for rape. Though I think Wisconsin doesn't even have that. Um, and you know, we know from lots of polling for a long time. That while it's not the case that, you know, the entire population loves Roe, the majority of the population loves a legal right to abortion. <laughs> <laughs> and this is going to produce a reaction. And it's going to produce a reaction among the voting bloc that the Republicans already have trouble with, namely women. Right. I, I, mean, I, agree. I couldn't be happier if that's what happens. You, know, you and um, me both. I, I actually. The Republican Party is the disgrace. So yeah. anything that creates trouble for them is good. <laughs> Um, yeah. I am attacked all the time by people who say the way you describe the Supreme Court is not how they see it. That's not how they act. The internal perspective isn't enough. It's part of it, but it's not enough. Take it from there. Okay. So, you know, as you know, my colleague Jeff Stone made this point yes. about a, an earlier uh, abortion decision. And, of course, he got a lot of uh, flack for Scalia that. boycotted your school for 20 years. And what's that? When he said Scalia's decisions were somewhat impacted by his Catholic, just somewhat by his Catholicism, Scalia boycotted Chicago where he taught for decades. Uh, that may be true. I'm not, I'm not sure. No, Jeff told that story here. It's true. Oh, okay, fine. Then I, I take his word for it. He's been here longer than me. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't view this as a particularly inflammatory observation. I view this as going back to the fact that um, let me say, I think it's you can't ask judges about their religion, right? Yeah. In confirmation hearings, I do think that Supreme Court justices should have to answer questions about their moral and political views because that's crucial to what they do on the Supreme Court, and that's why everybody's appointing them, right? You know, that's why they're getting picked to be on the Supreme Court because people have a sense of their moral and political views. Let it be discussed. Let it be open, right? Let people, you know, have to explain them. But I agree the religion should, you know, be off limits for confirmation purposes. Now, you know, as I put it in the, the, the way I put it before, I think he's exactly right. I mean, people's, pers people's political ideology and personal experiences affects what they do on the court, right? Jerome Frank had a very amusingly titled article many years ago called Are Judges Human? And the answer is yes, they are human, right? <laughs> yes. And to be a human is to have 
a religious upbringing for many people, to have a certain cultural upbringing, right? To be indoctrinated by your parents or your schools or your, your community into a political ideology, right? And how could all of this not play some role, right? in uh, how you approach cases like this. Now, I don't think it's conscious at all. I agree with that. I, you know, what I think is, if you come from a starting place of profound antipathy towards abortion, right, then you're not very likely to find a constitutional right to abortion in the Constitution, right? Um, and you have to be extremely, you know, you have a baseline antipathy, right, to the practice. Now, it can be fairly said they didn't go the full way, right? That is, they didn't, uh, you know, declare that the fetus is a person and they therefore- may. They might, they might. Well, maybe, but I actually don't think they're gonna go go that far um, because again, you know, the, the law underdetermines their decision, but it doesn't leave everything open. Right. So they could write, I could imagine a decision they could write. I mean, it was written for them by John Finnish and Robbie George in, a, in an amicus brief. Yes. Um, so they might uh, in a subsequent case, but you know, I think it's it's just slightly incredible to think that um, you know if you come out of a moral and religious tradition in which abortion is a grave sin, how could that not affect the way you look at a case that involves the right of people to have abortion? Of course, of course. So Brian, let me ask so. you a very specific question that I, that I raised on Monday uh, in my blog post. So I don't. You, you, I agree that you can't ask somebody, "Are you a Catholic? Are you a Jewish? Do you believe in God?" All those, any question about the afterlife, all of that is off limits. However, right. I, I gave a, a wild hypothetical to make a point. If we had somebody whose religion believed in child sacrifice and whose sincere religious belief that when there are terrible hurricanes, sacrifice a child so that the hurricanes will go away, and this is a long-standing two hundred-year belief, and that person wants to be a Supreme Court justice. It is absolutely fair to set, to ask them, do you think child sacrifice is something that is important or, or some question about child sacrifice? Or, or one more thing, the, the example I, that's closer to home, obviously, and more controversial, I have no problem asking a Catholic, do you agree with the position that women can't be priests? Not, I'm not asking if you're a Catholic, because uh, I have so many Catholic friends who are Catholic and don't agree with that. And if they say, no, I don't yeah. agree, okay, you can become a judge. But if they say, I agree that women shouldn't be priests, I vote against them every time. Is Yeah, I'd be reluctant to do that because that is very much a purely, it's, it's in effect a, a, a religious test, right? That is, is it? What about child sacrifice? Okay. So child sacrifice, um, that's an, I mean, it's an interesting hypothetical. Thank um, you. <laughs> um, you know, if you have reason to think that a judge happens to think that there are circumstances where child sacrifice yes. is permissible, you know, I guess I, the difference between those cases is the extremity of the belief that's involved, right? Um, you know, the harm to women from not being Catholic priests, there's some. It's not as great as the harm as sacrificing <laughs> something. Right. Right? Um, and, uh, you know, so... That's, you know, that's <clears throat> your hypothetical gets its force from the fact that that particular sectarian belief is, is quite extreme. Now, l let me say something a little more about the, uh, the, the role of religion in, in what the judges are doing. So Rick Garnett, who's a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Uh, yes, we've, we've had our battles, I got to tell you. Okay. 
he objected to Jeff Stone's, you know, original claim about this, and he objected again to mine when I brought it up on, on the blog. And he points out, he says, look, um, he says, you know, how is that more religious than, um, you know, believing in the fundamental equality of human beings, right? And what I said in, in response to him about this is that I actually agree with him. That, too, has a religious origin. Right? <laughs> I study Nietzsche. So, you know, I, Nietzsche yeah. likes to make this point. Nietzsche thought if people gave up belief in God, they'd give up belief in human equality because he didn't believe in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nietzsche, shall we say, is an outlier on this score. Yeah. I'm with the human equality folks. And, um, and he's, uh, you know, so yes, it has a religious origin. There's no question about that. You know, it derives from aspects, especially of the Judeo-Christian tradition. You know, the big difference is that it got secularized in the sense that plenty of people believe in human equality, um, you know, who are not, uh, who don't subscribe to Orthodox religions. Like me. <laughs> like you, like me, like lots of people. This is this is what annoyed Nietzsche. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, on the other hand, I don't, th it's very hard to find people, right, who think that, um, you know, the embryo, uh, ought to have legal rights. If the fertilized embryo should have legal rights, or that a very early stage fetus, you know, is a person equivalent to an actual person. Right? The only people who believe those things are people who have particular Orthodox religious commitment. You know, you could. There's probably you know there's somebody who believes everything in the world, but overwhelmingly, right? Um, that is still that particular belief has not been secularized at all, right? Um, and I strongly suspect it won't be secularized. Um, so there still is an important difference that I think people like Garnett want to elide, right? which is that sectarian religions have distinctive positions on certain issues, and judges are influenced by their religious upbringing, just like they're influenced by their moral upbringing, you know, by their parents, by their environment, and so on and so forth. And at the Supreme Court, boy, this really matters, because the <laughs> cases they're getting are overwhelmingly ones in which there is no law. Right. Or in the case of Roe, there is law, right? right? And they think it was bad law and they want to get rid of it. Just to be clear, I think, you know, when the court that decided Roe was also a super legislature. Of course. Or a progressive, not a reactionary one. That is because I'm in favor of abortion rights. That's a moral judgment, not a legal judgment. Me too. And, um, you know, the Roe court exercised the latitude that the Supreme Court has. Um, to write a bitty statute about abortion. Now, maybe it backfired politically, but I think it was a salutary decision from a moral point of view, if not a legal one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was vulnerable in the way that, you know, conservatives have argued now for, for many years. So I, I, I'm on record in several books and other places um, as saying that Roe and Casey were both wrongly decided, but no more so than a hundred other Supreme Court cases like Heller and Prince and New York. And, um, but I, I, I did a mea culpa on Sunday on a pod, not my podcast, but a different podcast. And I've decided I was wrong for 30 years or more. Um, here's what I underestimated, and I'm curious about your perspective on this. What I underestimated, and, and there's no excuse for this, I, I was attending my mother's women's consciousness raising meetings in 1971 when I was 13 um, and two years before Roe, and they were talking about how without the right to abortion, they can't be equal. So I, I have no excuse for this. But what I underestimated was the symbolism of Roe for gender equality, not just about abortion. And, and I think when we talk about reliance interests, I don't buy the polarities decision in Casey on reliance at all. 
But I do have, I've come to learn and, and I guess evolve on this. There is a, an, an, a more ephemeral reliance issue that women have to be equal in this country. <laughs> and without abortion, they can't be equal. And I underestimated that. And I, and I think John Hart, I, I think a lot of liberal legal academics of the early 1970s famously also got that wrong. Do you have a reaction to any of that? Well, when I, when I say I, you know, uh, I think Roe was salutary from a moral point of view, I think the, the main reason is that it contributed to um, gender equality. I think right. that's right. Um, now, you know, we have, there are lots of contexts where constitutional values conflict, right? So I don't think it makes it obvious that Roe is, you know, therefore a legally correct decision because it's a morally correct decision. Right. Um, you know, in addition to being a legal realist, I'm a legal positivist. I think those <laughs> things together, I think it's very important to keep separate the question, what is the law from what ought the law to be? Right. Um, and we could talk for three days about that, but go on. <laughs> We could indeed. Um, and, uh, you know, so when we evaluate the work of the Supreme Court, we need a baseline perspective on what is the law plausibly. Was Roe a plausible extension of Griswold and Eisenstadt? Yeah, it was plausible. Right. Um, was it required? No. <laughs> um, you know, was Griswold wrongly decided? Uh, you know, people, you know, the law was uncommonly silly, as Potter Stewart said. Um, you know, the uh, the second John Harlan in the case four years earlier had a probably better rationale Much. for getting that result than uh, than the penumbra that Justice Douglas introduced. Um, but, you know, all those courts were doing the right thing. They were making the United States, you know, uh, a better country. Right. And uh, and the real problem with Dobbs is going to make this country a worse country and it's going to harm a lot of people. Because the basic reality about abortion is women will get abortions, period. Yes. Um, and uh, the question is whether they can get safe and legal abortions or whether some number of women are going to end up dead because they live in Texas or they live in Wisconsin and they won't be able to get an abortion if the Dobbs decision goes through. Right? Um, and, you know, that's pretty grievous. Yes. Right? That's a pretty Agreed. grievously bad thing for the court to do. And they didn't have to do it. They didn't have to do it. Um, so that's kind of, you know, how I look at the original Roe in this court. And I do think the crucial difference is the Roe court was a more humane and progressive court and did the, the morally and politically correct thing. Um, this court is a reactionary court. And it is partly a reactionary court, in part because of the influence of, you know, the religious backgrounds of at least some of the justices, clearly not all. Right. Sotomayor is a Catholic. Not every Catholic is a reactionary Catholic. Right. Um, you know, there are, in fact, plenty of liberal Catholics. And and, you know, it would be a mistake to think that a particular religious upbringing, you know, gives you, you know, predicts with certainty what people are going to do. No, it's never that simple. Right. Sure. But it's clearly part of a formative influence on judges. Right. And what we need to know in confirming them is how what their moral and political views are. Not where they came from, but what are they? Right. And right now, as you know, we're never allowed to get any real answers on those questions. For what it's worth, I, I wrote something about Justice Kagan. Um, very, very, I love Justice Kagan's writing, and I think she's, but I wrote an article that said she was the one, she could have changed all this nonsense about the confirmation hearing. What she could have said is, I was dean of Harvard Law School, 
I have thought about constitutional law issues for a very long time. She was going to be um, confirmed anyway. And she could have said, I will never, I'm not going to promise in this hearing what, how I'm going to vote. I'm not going to give any commitments. But I've thought about abortion. I've thought about affirmative action. I've thought about the death penalty. And I will give you my opinions as they are today. Because I'm not going to lie and say I don't have them. But when I see briefs, when there are parties before me, when I have an actual case or controversy, I may change my mind. Being the former dean of Harvard Law School in a Democratic Senate where she was going to be confirmed, that would have worked. And I wish she had done it. And, and I, it, it, but but uh, that's just my little rant. I, have one, I, I do have one last question for you because um, we have five minutes left. And it's a doozy of a question, though. Um, so my book makes the argument, my first book, that when you go from Dred Scott to the civil rights cases, to Plessy, to Lochner plus 200, to Shelby County, Bush versus Gore, not Citizens United, which is correctly decided, but everything else that came after Citizens United, um, we have had a court that has meddled way too much in our politics in a negative way for a very long time, which is why I'm known as a Thayerin and a, someone who's strongly in favor of judicial deference. Whenever I argued that to Posner, he would say, so you're saying the court has been worse over time, has done more harm than good. And I would say, yes, that's my position. He would say, all right, prove it. And then I wrote a book. Um, do you think the court has done more harm than good over time? I feel in no position to answer that okay, question. Okay, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. Over time is a very long period of time. Yes. Yeah. Right? And I feel, you know, I have a better sense of what's happened, you know, say since the New Deal period. And, uh, and but of course, things are changing. Right. We yeah. may be moving, you know, uh, backwards distinctly. <laughs> range of issues, including some of the some of the ones you mentioned. Right. I mean, you said Citizens United was was rightly decided, and and I agree that given Buckley, you know, versus Vallejo. No, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. What I meant oh, is what the, did you mean? The what liberals don't get about this, and it drives me nuts, is the government censored a movie. We the government said you you can't produce this movie and and, and show it. Th that should have ended the case right there. That that the, that you, the government can't oh, censor movies. The, the, yeah, I agree. The, Certainly the government should not be in the business of censoring movies. Right? The question is whether money's speech. And if money's speech, you get citizens. No, that's wrong. That part of Citizen United is wrong. No, everything about Citizen United is wrong okay. except so for the agree result. That's, all right. Okay. Right. I mean, the mis but the really crucial mistake, right, yes. in terms of campaign expenditures came in 1976. We agree. Buckley is terrible. Money is not speech. Um, and, uh, you right. Know, speech I, I promised to get you out of here by, by 1 o'clock our time. I'm typing. Um. I want to have you back sometime to talk a whole hour on free speech. I really do, if you're willing to do it, because you and I are two okay. people, and maybe the only two law professors in America, who have a European, roughly European view on free speech, or or more European than American. Anyway, I can't find anybody else. It's you and me, buddy. I really can't. Is there anybody else out there who's saying these things? Uh, that's a good question. I don't uh, think so. I don't think probably so. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, you, and, you may be right about that. I'm gonna, I'll have to meditate on it. I'll meditate on it between now and the next time. Excellent. Brian, thank you so much for doing this. I learned so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I enjoyed the conversation very much. And, thank you so uh, much. Take care. Now. I learned a couple of useful things, too, including about <laughs> Justice Kennedy uh, and, uh, and his own personal experience that uh, contributed to his yeah. uh, 
salutary decisions that, again, move the country forward rather than backwards. And since you mentioned that, before we go, in 1986, and you may know this, he gave a speech to the Supreme Court of Canada where he talked about the right to privacy very earnestly, before, two years before he was nominated. This is not a new really? thing for Justice Kennedy. He, uh-huh. Anyway, thank, thank you, Brian. I, thank you. Take very care. nice to see you, Eric. And I look forward to doing it again.